Welcome back, GPSers, to another edition of the GPS Podcast. Uh, I know that you are excited to be back, and I'm glad that you're here as we continue talking about this new series that we're launching the year with, this series that we're calling Original, Becoming Who You've Always Been. And the title of that series is particularly apt for what we're discussing these previous two weeks, last week and then our episode today. And the reason I say that is because there are these claims that are made about you and me, about humanity, as these first and foundational claims that we shouldn't skip over. Just a quick recap from last week, because this is going to be part two of what was part one last week. We talked about how on day six of creation, a very special moment occurs. It's this peak of creation. It's the crescendo or the climax of this song that we have been singing from day one to two to three to four to five. And then we get to day six and this creation poem, this creation anthem culminates. It's like you're at a concert, a rock concert if it's me, and it's that peak of the song. It's that very last song where the drums and the cymbals and the guitars are going crazy. And you know, along with everyone else in the audience, that it is the end of the show. It's the big number that the band closes with. And that feel is what's happening here on day six, where there has been the steady rhythm of day after day after day after day. And then day six, there is this explosion of the word create. In fact, the word create happens more in day six than any other place in this opening creation account. And and where that is focused happens on one particular aspect of creation. It's the creation of humanity. Right in verse 27 of chapter 1, this word create is clustered together in this really succinct phrase. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then one more time, it emphasizes that God creates humanity. And so there's something very special about humanity, specifically that you and I are created in the image of God. Of God. And that, as we discussed last week, is the very first thing that is said about you and me. The most basic and foundational claim in Scripture, the first thing that we read about humanity, you and me, is that we're created in the image of God. And that's this really powerful identity statement that we shouldn't skip over. Because if we miss that identity statement, then I think we miss the way we read the rest of the story of Scripture and the way that we read our own lives. But the question I want to address in this podcast is, so what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And there are five words that I want to give us in this podcast that I think help us begin to imagine what it means to say that you and I are created in the image of God. And so I want to go through these five and then give some closing thoughts to set us up for next week. So when we use the word image of God, the first word, and they all start with R, spoiler alert, the first word that I want to give us is the word representative. And here's why I say that. In the ancient world, 
the only humans that would have ever been considered divine would have been kings, rulers on the throne. And these divine godlike figures would, like most kings, try to expand their reign and rule further and further and further. And sometimes their rule would extend into regions and areas that they couldn't be physically present in. And so what these kings would often do is they would put up an image of themselves or an image of the god as a way to represent their reign and rule in that particular place. And so when the writers of Genesis say that humanity is created in the image of God, they're making this significant claim about us being representatives of the reign and rule of God wherever we find ourselves. That as we go about our lives, as we move about the world on a day-to-day basis, to say that you and I are created in the image of God is to say that we are representing God wherever we go. That's word one, representative. Uh, Now word two is the word responsibility. And and this word is directly tied to that first word, representative, because with being a representative, there comes a responsibility. Another image to think about with this second word is is a mirror, that that we're called to, to mirror or to reflect, another R word, the God in which we believe. Now, if you've ever been to a fun house before, you know that you didn't see that coming. You know that you move through a fun house and there are often mirrors, fun house mirrors that have all of these shapes and turns and contours that are curved in odd ways to give you an odd look when you stand in front of them. So parts of your features are exaggerated, a long neck or particularly big feet or an oversized forehead when you stand in these mirrors that aren't quite the correct shape. But if you want a real mirror, if you want a mirror that is more effective, then you get a very flat and clear mirror so that when you stand in front of it, you get an accurate reflection of who you are. And I think that contrast of the different kinds of mirrors that we can experience in our world today is a helpful reminder of of the kind of reflecting, the kind of responsibility, what we can do with that or not do with that. That when we talk about this responsibility of reflecting the rule and reign of God wherever we find ourselves, of being faithful representatives, that what we're going for is that clean and flat and pristine kind of mirror. We're trying to reflect God as faithfully and as clearly as we can. We're trying to reflect God in ways that are faithful to who God is and how God works in the world. That that we're not called to be these funhouse mirrors that over-exaggerate and under-exaggerate who God is, leaving certain parts collapsed and other parts over-exaggerated. But we're, we're trying to be faithful representatives. We're trying to image God. We're trying to reflect God wherever we find ourselves. And so there is this inherent representative identity. And with that, second word is a responsibility. Now, the third word is another word that we don't need to miss, and it's the word resisting. 
Now, the reason why I say the word resisting, and this is an important cultural point to note, is that when the people of God claimed that every man and woman, all of humanity, is created in the image of God, this was a scandalous statement. This was resisting popular notions of the day that said the only people who were created in the image of God or who were created to be God-like were rulers and kings. And in this statement to say every man and woman, all males and females, all of humanity is created in the image of God would have resisted a popular story in the world that said only a select few could reflect God. And so early on, Israel is making this really profound and different claim about how to view men and women, that they are all created in the image of God, not just a select few. And the reason why I say that is because I think that that that's still a scandalous and resisting claim that we make when we hold Genesis 1 and 2 to be the, the most foundational and basic thing said about you and me. That no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what has happened to you, that you are still created in the image of God. And so you're a representative. You have this responsibility. And it is a resisting claim to say that everyone is created in the image of God. Now, for these last two R words, I want to spend just a little bit more time because they are going to connect not to the cultural piece, like those first few words, as much as to the biblical context of things that we read later on in Scripture. And these fourth and fifth words are related, but I want to address them separately and then bring them together. So we've had the word representative. We've had the word responsibility. We've had the word resisting. And this fourth word of what does it mean to say that we are created in the image of God is the word remaining. If you start the story in Genesis 3, then what is probably going to happen or what is probably going to be communicated to you is that the image of God is gone. That sure, that was true about Genesis 1 and 2, but something happens in Genesis 3 And a lot of people have been told that the most fundamental and foundational thing about them is that they're cracked, corroded, fallen, and depraved. But that's not what Scripture says. And here's what I mean by that. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have this claim that all of humanity is created in the image of God. And then if you skip over a few chapters to Genesis 9, you're going to read God speaking to Moses, excuse me, to Noah, Moses comes later, to Noah about this new covenant that he's creating with the people. That that God is going to continue to create covenants with the people. Moa, Moa. (laughs) Noah and Moses and on and on and on. God is this God of covenant. But what God says to Noah in Genesis 9 shouldn't be overlooked. He, he said that he is setting up this covenant with Noah and his sons. And then this is what God says to them, starting in Genesis 9, verse 1. 
Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. So let's just pause there at the end of verse 4. Basically what God is doing here is He is reinstating those claims from Genesis 1 that we read about last week. And He is re-establishing those as a priority in this covenant with Noah. And he talks about being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and having dominion over the animals. And yet he expands that relationship by saying you can now not just rule over the animals, but you can eat the animals. Sorry, animals. And he says that if you have those animals, if you eat those animals, then you don't need to have any blood in them. And then, starting in verse 5, he doesn't talk about the relationship with humanity and the animals. He begins to talk about humanity's relationship with other humans. And it's really important to notice what God says in these instructions. Starting in verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being Two, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. In other words, don't kill each other. Now verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So God talks about the relationship of humanity with each other. And he says that people shouldn't kill other people. That's a part of this new covenant with Noah. And then God gives a rationale for why Noah and his sons shouldn't kill other people. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And here is why. For in the image of God has God made mankind. We're in... Genesis 9, we are several chapters away after Genesis 3, and God is again reminding them and reestablishing the truth that men and women are created in the image of God. In other words, just because Genesis 3 happens does not mean that the image of God is taken from men and women. Several chapters later, Well, after the the fall or sin entering the earth, however you want to talk about Genesis 3, God says in Genesis 9 that men and women still have the image of God within them. Genesis 3 does not remove the image of God from you and me. The image of God remains in humanity. The image of God is still somehow present in you and me. Now, does Genesis 3 change the conditions that we live in? Does Genesis 3 change the context in which we find ourselves? Yes, it does. But just because our context changes doesn't mean the core content of who we are 
changes. The image of God may be tarnished. It may be corroded by the forces at work in the world that are not in line with the purposes of God. But the image of God is still present in you and me. This is this important part of what it means to be created in the image of God that we should not and cannot miss. Uh, That just because a fall has happened, just because there was a crack in God's plans, just because corrosion began to happen, however you want to talk about Genesis 3, Genesis 9 shows us that the image of God, according to God, is still present in us. And that's so critical for us to see, that the image of God still remains in you and me. No matter how our context of creation changes or pushes against us or rebels or we fight or we have all of this uncertainty around us, we can still hold on to this claim that we are created in the image of God. It still remains in us. Final word I want us to look at for our podcast today. We've had the word representative. We've had the word responsibility. We've had the word resisting. We've had the word remaining. And the final word I want us to look at is the word restoring. That there is this experience of the image of God being restored in each and every one of us. So I want to tell a story that I think will help illustrate this point. Every summer, when I was in high school, I would go out to my uncle's house about 20 minutes from where I lived. He lived out in the middle of the country, and on summer evenings after I got off work, I would take these country back roads as the sun was setting in those Tennessee hills, and I would weave my way to arrive at his home where my aunt and uncle and cousin lived. And he had this white barn out back behind their house. And I still remember one summer he asked me to come out because he wanted to show me something. So I drove out there that summer afternoon, curious about what he was going to show me. And I remember pulling into their gravel driveway as the sun was setting and there was pinks and blues and purples in the sky. And I remember walking into his garage where he would do his woodworking. And so the smell of sawdust immediately filled my nose. And he took me to this back portion of the garage that I had never been in before. And when I walked in, there was this huge white cloth draped over what looked like a big metal chunk or a big hunk of metal, I should say. And I remember when I walked in, he pulled that big canvas off of the metal. And there underneath was this beat up, rusted, what looked like a car. And it didn't exactly look how it was supposed to, but I could still see that there was a car there, that there was the hood and there was the trunk and there was where the wheels would be. It was up on these four jacks. And so you could see the beginnings of what my uncle was going to work on. And he was very excited, very excited. And he talked about how he was going to restore the car 
to become what it once was. It was a 1967 Chevy Comet, and every summer I would come back, often many times in a summer, and every time I came back, the car would look a bit more like it was supposed to. One day I would come back, and there would be a nice panel that he had smoothed off the rust, and it was this bright, shining silver waiting to be painted. Another time I came back and the empty bucket seats had been replaced with these leather white seats. And week after week, summer after summer, my uncle restored this car to look the way that it had always looked. And by the end, there was this bright white paint on the outside and these white and red seats on the inside and this shiny black steering wheel on the inside. These nice chrome wheels with pinstriped lines down the side. And even to this day, my uncle keeps that car and will drive it on summer evenings as this restored Chevy Comet. And the reason I tell that story is because I think it's a helpful metaphor for how we think about the image of God in us. That that the image of God, though it may be corroded, though there may be rust on it, though it may be tarnished in some ways, it is still very much present within us. It still remains. And yet, God is at work restoring that image in us to look the way it was always intended to be. Because when I first went out to see that car with my uncle, was I looking at a Chevy Comet from 1967? Well, yes, it was a Chevy Comet. But when I looked at it the very last time as a fully restored Chevy Comet, I saw what it was always intended to be. It was always a 1967 Chevy Comet from the beginning till the end, but as my uncle did the work of restoring, it looked more and more like what it was always intended to be. And I think that's a helpful metaphor to to think about the process that each and every one of us are in, that we have the image of God in us. It is maybe tarnished, but it's not taken away. And the work that God is doing is restoring that image more and more and more so that we can become, again, who we've always been. And if you continue reading through Scripture, what you'll see is that the image of God, capital I, is most fully seen in Jesus. That Colossians 1, 15-20 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so in Jesus, we see who we were always intended and created to be. And so the process each and every one of us is in is the process of the image of God being restored into the image of God, capital I. And that really is this process, this trajectory that we all find ourselves on, that each and every one of us are in this process of being restored more and more and more to be who we've always been. That the image of God is not taken away, 
It may be corroded and cracked and tarnished, but God's work in us and on us and through us is to fully restore that image to become what it's always been. And the New Testament writers talk about this in different ways. Paul talks about it, uh, telling us that we're to, to put on this new self, which, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Uh, Peter will talk about this, about God giving us his divine power, everything that's needed for this life and godliness and the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And he keeps talking and and he says that that God has given us these things so that we may become participants of the divine nature. In another place, Paul will talk about how we should put on our new self that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is this big theme that we see running through the New Testament. And, And as we close, I want to kind of help us think about this with what is said in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And I like to peel those two words apart and, and think about them individually, but also connected, that, that we're created in the image of God. That is this given about you and me. We are created in the image of God. But then we're also created in the likeness of God, or created in such a way that we can become like God. And so we also have this goal. We also have this potential. We also have this inherent becoming embedded in who we are. But on the one hand, yes, we're all created in the image of God. And on the other hand, we're also created to become more and more like God. And that really is the process of salvation. That is this process of restoration that we're created in the image of God and we have the potential to become like God. And so, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that we're a representative of the rule and reign of God. It means that we have this responsibility to reflect God in faithful ways. It is this identity that resists a lot of other identities that people try to give to us because it remains in us no matter what. But what we are also trying to do is to become more and more like that image, that we're opening ourselves to become more and more like God, to be participants in the divine nature, to put on that new and true self, created to be like our Creator. So those are these five words I want to give us this week as part two of original image. And next week, what I want to do is I want to tease out more what does it mean to say that we're created in the image of God. We've talked about identity, but next week I want to talk about function and purpose and calling and tease out more what that means for you and me. So thank you again for being here for part two, uh, and we'll see you next week as we continue this series on Genesis 1 and 2.